Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. We had a bit of a turnaround Tuesday today. All of the major U.S. stock market averages were higher in the morning, and we closed broadly lower on the day. In fact, the Dow Jones did make a new all-time record high this morning before closing down about 60 points, although the decline in the NASDAQ was a little bit greater. We had a 0.82% decline in the Nasdaq, the Dow was only down by about 0.3%. S&P 500, though, had a bigger decline. There it was down about 0.7%. So the broader averages took a bigger decline than did the Dow. Now, I don't think the technical damage is extreme. Yes, we made new highs and closed lower, but it really wasn't an outside day. I mean, we didn't close below Monday's lows, for example, which would have been an outside reversal, but we'll see. You know, when markets are as extended as they are, of course, you know, they can top on anything. You know, I read an interesting article that I put up on my Facebook page that tried to draw a comparison between what happened with the Amazon Whole Foods merger and the big high-profile AOL Time Warner merger in 2000. And, you know, you had a big internet darling, you know, making a big brick and mortar purchase. And that marked the peak really of the internet bubble. And the author was talking about, hey, this is another high profile case where you have a major internet company buying a brick and mortar type company, a lot of fanfare, a lot of hype. And, you know, maybe this is also uh, going to mark a a major top. And it's an interesting analysis because I think we're about at the 15 year um, anniversary, I guess, of that of that purchase. I'm, maybe it was a little more than that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it certainly is a interesting comparison to make. I mean, obviously, it's not a perfect analogy. I mean, there are some things about the acquisitions that are similar, but there are some things where they're not, where they're different. So it's not a perfect analogy, but uh, it's just something that is food for thought. I mean, I do believe that the U.S. stock market is substantially overvalued. In fact, a bubble 
a big bubble. The only reason that I believe that the air is not going to come out of the bubble is because the Fed isn't going to let it. I mean, I'm pretty sure that any significant decline in the stock market is going to be met with aggressive Fed rate cuts, quantitative easing. I don't believe the Yellen Fed is prepared to allow the markets to implode the way they did in 2008 or 2001. I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe, maybe she is. You know, now that Donald Trump is president, maybe they're happy to have a stock market crash on Trump's watch, especially since he has wrapped himself in this bubble. He has now declared the strong stock market is now proving uh, that he's doing a good job. It is now the 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 indicator of the efficacy of his presidency, the effectiveness of his leadership now, the stock market is the way he has chosen to be measured. And so now that he has done that, now that he has committed to that, well, maybe the Fed is willing to see a bigger decline. But for now, the markets you know, continue to rise, ignore not only the fact that the Fed is tightening, but that it may be doing quantitative tightening on top of just regular tightening. So far, the markets have shrugged that off. We'll see how much longer that is going to last. They continue to shrug off bad economic news. You know, look at the news coming out of uh, the state of Illinois. I mean, I haven't really talked much about the state of Illinois, but they are bankrupt. I mean, now, of course, they can raise taxes and they will raise taxes. There's a lot of money still in Illinois. They haven't chased it all out yet. And so they are in a huge fiscal hole. And if they can't cut spending, if they can't cut government pensions, all they can do is raise taxes. But of course, when they do raise taxes, what is going to happen? Businesses go, are going to leave. High earners are going to move out. I mean, now the thing is, right now in Illinois, they actually have a constitutional amendment of the state constitution that says that any income tax needs to be flat, right? They have a flat rate tax now, and it's actually only 3.5% in Illinois. It was 5% a couple of years ago. They cut it to 3.5%. Now they've got to raise it back up. There is a proposal, I think, to raise it north of 5% now, but that's still probably not even enough. But the problem is they can't have a graduated tax, which is not really a problem. It's a good thing. According to Illinois, if you're going to have an income tax, it has to be the same rate for everybody. So they can't just have a soak the rich tax unless they amend their state constitution so that they can have a graduated income tax. But of course, the graduated income tax isn't, you know, working out that well here in Connecticut because, you know, they tax the higher earners at higher rates and they're leaving. I mean, look what they do in California. Now you've got the top rate in California is 13%, right? And of course, they're eroding their own tax base there as well because they're high income earners that won't, don't want to pay 13%, especially, and I'm going to get to the tax reform speech later that we got today, but one of the reforms that the Republicans are considering is eliminating the deduction for state and local taxes which obviously would include state income taxes. And so that's going to even create a bigger incentive for high-income earners to flee high-tax states. So to the extent that Illinois succeeds in amending its state constitution and imposing a progressive, you know, graduated income tax where the top rates are 8 9 10% or more, uh, then that is only going to hasten the exodus of the high uh, uh, taxpayers, the employers, out of the state of Illinois uh, to neighboring states that have lower tax situations. But the economic news is certainly bad there. And to the extent that the state government does slap a big tax hike 
on the residents of Illinois, isn't that going to weaken the local economy? Isn't that going to take purchasing power away uh, from uh, taxpayers in the state of Illinois? And of course, purchasing power is already under attack. You know, I read another article that I put up on my Facebook page. This article was in the New York Times, and it was about the auto loans and the repossessions and the fact that one of the differences between the auto loans and the housing loans that went bad is when people borrowed money to buy houses, in general, they were purchase money loans. And the only collateral for the lender was the house. So when somebody borrowed money to buy a house and then they walked away from the mortgage, um, the only thing the creditor could do, the lender, was sell the house. And if there wasn't enough value there, if they sold the house for less than the value of the mortgage, it was the lender's loss. That was one of the big problems uh, during the 08 financial crisis was the losses that lenders uh, were, were incurring on these bad loans because when they went to sell the real estate, it wasn't worth enough to recover what they had loaned the borrower to buy the house. Right? But what's happening with these auto loans is all these subprime loans, and I didn't even realize this, that when people were borrowing money to buy the car, they weren't just pledging the car. I mean, yes, the car was collateral for the loan, but it wasn't the only collateral. The lenders have recourse to the borrower's other assets and to their income. So when you walk away from your car loan, it ain't over, right? The lender then can go and garnish your wages, seize your bank accounts. And all of this is starting to happen now as the subprime bubble in the automobile market is bursting. So what is this going to do to consumer spending when consumers are, are fighting with creditors over the scraps? You know, when they're trying to garner their wages or seize their their bank accounts you know you have over a trillion dollars in auto loans that are about to go bad a lot of these loans and so this is a big problem not to mention you know you got the student loans and you got the credit card debt and of course credit card debt too i mean you know that that is you know the the companies can go after your other assets i mean they're on credit cards it's not just you know if you don't pay your credit card bill i mean obviously you know they're not going to come trying to repossess uh, the goods that you bought, right? But they could go after your your your, your bank accounts, or they could come after um, your uh, your your paycheck. So Americans now are going to be, you know, hit, are going to be under a lot of pressure from creditors as a result of all the debt. So let's say you're in Illinois, and you know you didn't pay your car loan, or your car got repossessed, you still owe money, and now the government's trying to raise your taxes on top of all that. I mean, it's a perfect storm over there. But all of this is spreading. And people tend to be ignoring uh, the bad news about the economy. And again, this is exactly what happened in 2007, 2008. The news was horrible. Day after day, we get all this bad news. And I would go on television, and this is when they had me on. They used to have me on all the time in 2007. I was not on just on CNBC. I was on Fox News. I was on Fox Business. Uh, or not Fox. I don't even know if Fox Business was around yet. I was on Fox News. I was on CNN. I was on MSNBC. I did all kinds of TV. And I was talking about all these problems. And nobody could see it. As far as everybody was concerned, it was Goldilocks. Everything was great. And you could see all this bad news and everybody was rationalizing it. And the same thing is happening this time. Nobody wants to acknowledge it, least of all the Fed. The Fed is going merrily along, raising interest rates. We're going to shrink our balance sheet. 
Yeah, we're data dependent and they're ignoring all of the data that they supposedly depend on. In fact, look at the oil price. You know, oil prices now hit a new low for the year. I think we're down at, what, 43 and change on oil. And one of the main reasons, or probably the main reason, that oil prices are falling is because inventories of unused oil, unused gasoline, are building in America. Why is this happening? It's because the economy is using less energy. Why are we using less energy? Because we're slowing down, right? Because the economy is weak, because the economy may be in a recession. That is why it is using less energy. Now, of course, I believe the oil price is going to turn when the dollar turns, right? When people realize that the economy is weak, when the Fed has to acknowledge that it's weak and it tries to help. And the only way that they can do that is by printing a bunch of money, doing QE4, cutting rates, and then the dollar tanks, and then the oil price is going to take off. Why? Because global demand is going to skyrocket when the dollar tanks, because the dollar going down raises purchasing power all around the world while it reduces the price of oil. So if oil becomes cheaper and foreign economies become stronger, then they demand more oil. And also, you know, a lot of these emerging markets, they have U.S. dollar denominated debt. And so when the dollar goes down, it's like a giant tax cut for the emerging markets because all of a sudden their debt becomes less of a burden to repay. It becomes less of a burden to service. So it's like all of a sudden you had an adjustable rate mortgage and the rate went way down. Well, now you have all this extra money to buy more stuff. What's, what's the, what do you buy? You buy more oil because you buy more cars. You use more energy. You use more power. So when the dollar goes down, the price of oil is going to go up. But right now, the price of oil is under pressure because the dollar hasn't gone down. So foreign demand isn't picking up the slack for the U.S. demand that is going away because of the weakness in the economy. Now, we don't get a lot of economic data out this week, but we did get some. We got the current account deficit for Q1, the first quarter of uh, 2017 and it widened from an upwardly revised 114 billion from the prior quarter but it didn't widen as much as people had thought because it ended up at 116.8 billion i think the consensus was for something north of 120 billion but it was still an increase over the prior quarter and they did revise the prior quarter up and the, the current account deficit, the fact that it's growing, it is a negative sign. But what is really going to put even more upward pressure on the current account deficit is going to be rising interest rates. Because remember, one of the key components of the current account is net investment income. It's all the interest and dividends that Americans have to pay to foreigners on the U.S. assets that they own, minus the interest and dividends that Americans receive on the foreign assets that they own. And, you know, as the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, a lot of treasuries are owned internationally, either by foreign central banks or foreign uh, funds or, you know, pension funds or hedge funds internationally. There are a lot of U.S. treasuries in foreign hands. And as the Fed raises rates, that means we have to pay higher interest on the liabilities that our creditors are holding. And so that will tend to increase uh, the current account. So I think that is going to continue as well as the acceleration of the trade deficits. So rising trade deficits and rising interest rates will work against America. We are a debtor nation, right? We owe the world money on balance, not the other way around. So to the extent that interest rates increase the cost of what we have to pay to service the debt 
that foreigners own, then this number is going to get bigger and bigger. I mean, right now it's about 2.5% of GDP, uh, which is still a big number, but it's nowhere near as big as it's going to be with normalized interest rates if we ever get there. But other than that, we don't have a lot of economic news coming out. I think the only thing of significance that we get this week is uh, the PMI that's coming out on Friday. Right? So uh, not a lot. That's going to be a June PMI composite. So a, very, a week that's very light on actual data. I mean, we're looking, there are various Fed officials that are speaking. Uh, this morning, you had Stan Fisher, uh, Kaplan, you know, you had Dudley was speaking yesterday, Evans, there's, there's these Fed guys are speaking all week. There are, you know, more people speaking Thursday and Friday. So obviously there's something they could say, but they've been sounding more hawkish. I mean, they've been beating this hawkish drum about raising rates, about shrinking the balance sheet. Uh, every once in a while, you get some dove, you know, kind of sneak in a comment. Uh, but overall, they've been trying to talk up uh, the economy and talk up their ability to deliver on uh, these rate hikes and this balance sheet decline. And again, I think that's very dangerous talk, given what the markets would actually do if the Fed were to follow through with this. Now, maybe there are a lot of players in the market who believe, like me, that they're not going to follow through. They're just talking. But you know what? I thought they were just talking about raising rates. They raised them, right? Despite the fact that the data gave them an excuse not to, they had plenty of reasons not to raise rates. They had all the excuses they need not to do it. Yet they raised them anyway. Now, yes, they did raise them very slowly, but you know what? Now they're raising them quicker. We got one rate hike during the Obama presidency. The second hike that we got, I think, happened. He was still president, but the election was over, right? So we got two hikes during the eight years of Obama, but one of them happened after the election. So since Trump has been elected, since he was elected president, we've already had three rate hikes. So, I mean, think about the pace at which the Fed is hiking rates now when Trump is president versus the pace of the hikes when Obama was president. And by most measures, the economy is weaker now than it was in many of the years under Obama when the Fed decided not to raise rates. So the economy was stronger for many years under Obama, yet the Fed did nothing. In fact, there were years while Obama was president where the Fed was launching new QE programs, launching Operation Twist, when the economy was in better shape than it is now. Yet now, when the economy is weaker than it was in the past when they provided stimulus, they are now providing sedatives. So you tell me, is this politics or is there something else going on? Talking about politics, I do want to talk about the press conference today that Paul Ryan called for. He had this big press conference today, basically laying out the case for a tax cut, or not just a tax cut, tax reform. But there were no real specific details in this speech. I don't really know what was accomplished here because there was nothing new. I listened to the entire thing. But a couple of things I want to point out that are really disingenuous on the part of Paul Ryan. And again, it shows that it's more politics than anything else. So one of the things he tried to say was that the American tax system is, you know, the highest in the world or the most, you know, the most burdensome, which is true. That's all true. But he said that small business owners, which he said most of American companies uh, are small businesses. Most of the employers are small businesses. And he said they are paying a tax of 43 and 
uh, a half percent or approximately, right? It's 39 point something plus the Obamacare. So it's 43 point something. And he said that's terrible because, you know, big corporations, they're only paying a tax rate of 35 percent, which he still thinks is high, you know, based on international uh, standards. But the point he was trying to make is we really need to reform taxes because it's not fair that small companies are paying tax rates that are higher than big corporations. And that's just not true. That is a lie. I mean, if that was true, all these small companies would incorporate. I mean, anybody can incorporate. So if corporations were getting a tax break over small businesses that are not incorporated, then they would just incorporate. And in fact, most small businesses, when they incorporate, they choose to incorporate as an S-corp as opposed to a C-corp. And the reason they choose the S-corp status is specifically to pay the taxes at the individual rate rather than the corporate rate. So if Ryan is trying to make the point that small businesses are paying a higher tax than big corporations, why are these small business owners choosing to pay those so-called higher taxes when they can easily pay the corporate tax if they want to incorporate as a C-corp? And the reason is because uh, Ryan is not being straightforward when he gives these press conferences, because what he's not saying is that, yes, uh, a small businessman who's uh, a, a partnership, an LLC, an S corp, he pays a 43% tax rate, but there's only one level of taxation. The problem with corporations is the 35% corporate tax is just half the burden. That's the, the rate that the corporation pays when it earns its money. But before the owners of the corporation can get at that money, it has to be distributed to them in the form of a dividend. Right? Or they would have to sell their shares, and now they would have a capital gains. And in that case, there is another level of tax, and it's 24%. It's the 20% uh, dividend tax plus the you know 3.9% Obamacare tax. So if you take the corporate earnings uh, from beginning to end, from earnings to the pocket of the owner, the actual corporate tax rate is just over 50%. Because the corporation pays 35 cents to the government when it earns the money. Now it has 65 cents left over. Assuming it paid out all that 65 cents to the shareholders, they would pay another 20.4% of that. But of course, you know, the reality is if you own a publicly traded corporation, right? I mean, most companies do not pay 100% of their earnings in dividends, right? They pay 30%, 40%, it's called the payout ratio. And that would actually be a high payout ratio, you know, 30, 40%. I mean, there are some companies that don't pay any dividends at all, right? They pay zero. A lot of companies, a lot of tech companies don't pay dividends. But the interesting thing is, if you actually look at the amount of money the government gets from a corporation, because it takes its 35% tax right off the top, right? If you compare that to the amount of money the shareholder actually gets in dividends, the government makes a lot more money from every U.S. corporation than the actual owners. The U.S. government, you take a company, you know, that's actually paying taxes, right? There are some U.S. companies, obviously, that use the tax code uh, to come up with a lot of deductions and zero out their taxes. But let's say you get a corporation that's actually paying, let's say, 30 percent of its income in taxes. The government is making a lot more off that company than the owners are in, the, in what they actually collect in after-tax uh, dividends. I mean, that's why the fascist is smarter than the communist, because under communism, the government seizes the corporation and owns it completely and operates it. 
But since governments are incompetent and can't run anything well, when a government seizes a corporation and runs it, the revenue, the profit collapses. Governments in general are better off not seizing the company, just taxing it high so that the private sector will run it, try to maximize the profits, and then the government will just claim a big chunk of those profits. And so normally when a government nationalizes corporations through taxation, where they take equitable ownership through taxation, then of course they also try to control things through regulation, they actually make more money. If the U.S. government were to outright seize the Fortune 500, right, take over, seize all the assets, confiscate all these companies, they would likely have less revenue from that than what they get now by just taxing them with a high rate of tax. So, you know, in effect, right, the government takes ownership of the means of production, not by stealing it, but by taxing it. And that really is the economic difference between communism and fascism, because both communism and fascism are two forms of socialism, except the communist is too dumb to figure out what the fascist knows, that people will work harder if they think it's their business, right? Why steal the guy's business so he knows it's not his and just hire him to run it because he's not going to do as good a job? Let him think he owns it, but just tax him to death, right? Because if the government makes more from a business than the shareholders, then the government owns it for all practical purposes. It's, it's now a government-owned business. So what benefit would there be in outright seizing it, right? If the net result would be the government actually earned less money from seizing the property than it's earning from allowing it to be in private hands superficially, but derive the lion's share of the benefit through taxation. But one more thing that I thought was very disingenuous about the Ryan press conference, he spent a lot of time talking about how we want to make sure that the tax cuts are permanent that we don't want any temporary tax cuts, right, that sunset. And, of course, the temporary tax cuts that they are talking about would be tax cuts that only last for 10 years, right, because after 10 years they go away. And this has to do with the budget process because you can't add to the deficit with your tax cuts unless the tax cuts are temporary because if it's a permanent tax cut, then you've got to score it a certain way. But if you make it go away after 10 years, then obviously – The impact on the deficit goes away 10 years from now. And first of all, the whole idea that these idiots have any idea what the budget is going to be 10 years from now. They don't know what it's going to be next year, let alone making projections 10 years into the future. So they're they're already assuming that they have the ability to do something that they can't do. They have no idea what the government is going to spend because they don't even what are interest rates going to be 10 years from now. We don't even know what they're going to be 10 months from now. They know what interest rates are going to be 10 years from now. They know what the unemployment rate is going to be. They know what the inflation rate is going to be. They don't know anything. So none of these numbers even matter anyway. The only budget that really counts, and even then they can't get it that accurate, is the current year. And they're usually off by a pretty big percentage when they're estimating the budget for the year that we're in. When they know what the rate is, they know what the unemployment rate, they know what the inflation rate is now because it's already here. And they still get it wrong. So they're going to they're going to know what it is 10 years from now. But this whole idea that we need to have a permanent tax cut is complete nonsense. I mean, Ryan is saying we're not going to get the, the stimulus we need unless the tax cuts are permanent. They're never permanent. There has never been a permanent tax cut ever enacted in the history of the United States. Look, remember the big Reagan tax cuts, right? He cut taxes early on. Well, you know what? 
Then he started raising them. There were plenty of tax hikes while Ronald Reagan was president. Right? Nothing is permanent. When the government cuts taxes, it doesn't come with a guarantee that the rates are never going to go up. Every tax cut is temporary because the government can tax us whenever we want. We have no idea. You know, we have elections every two years. We have a new president every four years. Right. Look, even George Bush, he ran. Read my lips. No new taxes. He got elected. He raised taxes. Everybody can raise taxes. And, you know, when you live in a country that's broke, when you have an enormous debt like we do, how can you expect a tax cut to be permanent? Like I mentioned earlier in this podcast, Illinois. Yes, they cut taxes. They cut the state income tax a couple of years ago. Was that a permanent cut? Well, apparently, because there was no predetermined hike. But of course, it's not permanent. They're already raising it because the state is broke. They need money. Well, the United States is broke. Who is stupid enough to believe that if they cut taxes uh, tomorrow, what businessman is going to be so dumb as to believe that this is permanent, that this is never going to change, that this is my tax rate from now until the end of time. No, people are going to think, you know what? They've cut taxes. Let me make the best of it because who knows how long they're going to stay low. You know, the idea too, the so-called temporary tax cuts are going to last 10 years. Huh, I'd be surprised if any tax cut lasts 10 years, temporary or permanent. I mean, if the temporary tax cuts actually survive for 10 full years, I will be shocked, right? Because even if we get the temporary tax cut, and the temporary time period is 10 years, I bet within two or three years, they raise taxes again, right? So we're not even going to be able to make it through the two-year temporary period. The same thing would happen if we made the tax cuts permanent. If they were permanent, they're still going to change them in a year or two. So this is all a distinction without a difference. This is about the, the Republicans trying to claim some kind of victory. You know, like, aha, we got, we got permanent tax relief. No, we didn't. Even, you know, tax hikes, of course, aren't permanent either, right? You know, they can hike taxes and they can choose to cut them, but nothing that they do. The only thing that's really permanent is a government program, right? Because once they start a government program, you can never end it, right? We've got plenty of government programs that were enacted during the Great Depression, supposedly to fight the Depression. Well, the Depression, I guess, ended uh, at, with the Second World War, yet the programs that were instituted to fight the Depression, they're still here. Although, you know, I did uh, mention that the average growth rate over the last 10 years was actually lower than the average growth rate during the 10 years of the Great Depression. So in that respect, the Depression is back. But the point is, we went through many, many decades where we weren't in the Depression, yet none of these Depression-era programs uh, managed to go away. In fact, we still have Obamacare, right? I mean, Obamacare, nothing happened there, right? It's still here. You know what uh, Richard Nixon said? Right. When he took us off the gold standard, he said it was temporary. Hey, oh, yeah. He took us off the gold standard temporarily. Well, what it's been almost 50 years. We haven't gone back on it. So it doesn't matter what the government says. They can say it's temporary, but it's it lasts forever or they can say it's permanent and it's going to go away or a year or two. So this whole argument about whether they should be temporary or or permanent is a tempest in a teapot. It's an argument that should not exist. It is basically distracting everybody's attention from the fact that we're broke and we can't afford to cut taxes. And, you know, they're trying to enact a tax cut. What they really want to do 
is get all these budget reconciliations to be waived so they can enact a massive budget busting tax cut and pretend that it's permanent rather than have to sunset it in 10 years. But either way, it's not going to matter because the deficits are going to explode. The tax cuts are going to go away. They're going to be replaced by tax hikes sooner rather than later. And the one tax that's coming sooner, even if they succeed in cutting the income tax, they are going to raise the inflation tax because nobody in Washington, none of the Republicans, not President Trump, are promising to cut government spending. In fact, they are all promising to increase government spending. Government spending goes up under the Republican budget, under the Trump budget. Are there some cuts? Yes. But overall, spending is rising. So some things are cut, but not enough to offset the other areas of the budget that are rising, like interest on the national debt, defense, Medicare, Medicaid, all those things on autopilot, going up, going up in a big way. And if we're going to cut off revenue as expenditures continue to accelerate, where is the government going to get the money? Well, obviously, the Fed is going to have to supply it, but not if it's doing quantitative tightening. If the Fed is doing quantitative tightening, then interest rates have to skyrocket and the whole economy has to implode because then the government is going to have to find private buyers to fund these massive deficits. At the same time, it's trying to find private buyers to repay the Fed. No, what's more likely is if we get these tax cuts, we're going to get QE4. Forget about shrinking the balance sheet. The balance sheet is going to explode. Forget about more rate hikes. We're getting rate cuts. And so we're going to have massive inflation. We're going to have all the inflation that should have happened years ago, right? It's been kind of held at bay. It's going to come hitting us like a tsunami of inflation. We're going to get it, you know, we're, we're going to make up. Uh, for all the inflation that's been held back by foreigners who have been hoarding our dollars and hoarding our treasuries based on the false belief that the Fed's policy worked, that they were going to be able to follow through with all these uh, rosy commitments that they made, that our economy was in great shape, they would normalize the balance sheet or normalize interest rates, shrink the balance sheet. So we're going to get hit with that inflation tax. And the inflation tax will more than offset any tax cuts, right? Yes, the government will cut your taxes so you'll have more money. But when you go to buy stuff, the stuff that you need to buy will be more expensive. So in real terms, even after cutting taxes, you'll have less purchasing power than before the tax cuts because the inflation tax will rob you of any benefits that the actual tax cuts delivered. (music) 